do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Thank you to Pastor Andrew, my boss, for doing an excellent job last week, giving us a week off as we were busy moving, uh, doing an excellent job talking about the forgiveness that we have in Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. What an excellent reminder that was for us. And we're going to continue with a lot of those same themes this morning as we're going to look at 1 John chapter 2. We're going to talk about how Christ is our advocate who frees us from both the penalty and the power of sin. There's a statement that Jesus makes in the Gospels that is always, it's such a powerful thing that it's not only penetrated the church world, but even in the the world, it's a phrase that gets used very often. Finish it after me. The truth will set you what? Free. We all know it. We've all heard it. You see it in the courtroom dramas and all that stuff. The truth will set you free. That is so true, and the more I'm in ministry, the longer I've been dealing with people, the more I've learned that most of the time, most of the problems that we face as Christians come either because we're believing a lie or there's a truth that we're not acknowledging. Most of our problems as Christians really are that simple. There's a lie that we're believing, either consciously or subconsciously, or there's a truth that we are not acknowledging. And I believe as Christians, there are two lies that are very common that we are often tempted to believe. And I think that John in this paragraph that we're going to study this morning is going to address both of these lies. I was chatting with Dave Peterson. He's our pastor of biblical counseling here at Coastal this week. And I was kind of talking about my sermon. I told him what these two lies were. And he said, as a biblical counselor, those are the two lies that keep people coming to my office. Here's what they are. Lie number one. Because I'm forgiven, I can sin all I want. That's lie number one. Because I'm forgiven, I can sin all I want. This is the attitude, the perspective that the forgiveness that we have in Christ, that the gospel is now a license for us to live however we please, and it no longer matters. That's lie number one. Lie number two is on the other end of the spectrum. Lie number two says, my sin is too big for Jesus to forgive. My past is too messy. My current is too messy. My life is too messed up. My sin is too bad for the grace of Jesus Christ to cover. These are the two lies. Because I'm forgiven, I can sin all I want. And my sin is too bad for Jesus to forgive. And sometimes we believe both lies on the same day. Or is that just me? I've often heard it said that the devil sometimes will say to you before you sin, hey, it's okay, you're a Christian, God will forgive you. Then after you sin, he goes, and you call yourself a Christian. Right, the temptation comes first and the shame comes later. These are these two lies that we're tempted to believe all the time, consciously or and subconsciously. And what John is going to tell us in this text is that the answer to both of them is the same. The answer is the grace of Jesus Christ. And this grace both frees us from the penalty of sin, that is, it forgives us no matter what we've done because Christ is our advocate, but it is also power for holiness. 
The same grace that covers us also cleanses us and conforms us to the image of his son, all because of our advocate, Jesus Christ. So here's the main point this morning. Because Jesus is our advocate, we should strive to walk in obedience to his word. With this in mind, let's read this paragraph together. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to study the first six verses. The word of God says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so, Father, we ask for your blessing upon the preaching of your word this morning. I pray, Father, that this sermon would be worship calling for worship. Lord, that I would worship you as I proclaim this text and that the congregation would respond in worship by hearing your word as coming straight from your mouth, Lord, and, and applying it to their lives. Father, I pray that through this passage, you would clear away the fog of lies that we're tempted to believe and you would replace it with the truth of the gospel, the truth of your grace that both covers us and cleanses us. Help us to know that your grace is sufficient for us because Christ is our advocate. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. The first thing I'd like to show you from this text this morning is very simple. Church, our forgiveness is not licensed to sin. John is reminding us that our forgiveness, incredible as it is, is not licensed to continue in sin. Let's start looking at verse one, the first half. It says, my little children. Right off the bat, this shows us that this is not some detached theological treatise that John is writing just for fun. He cares about these people. He loves these people. He's calling them his little children in the faith. He loves them. And he tells them a little bit more insight into why he's writing this letter. He says, I'm writing these things to you. Why? So that you may not sin. That seems pretty extreme, doesn't it? I mean, we know this. We're sinners. We struggle with sin. We're not going to be perfect. We just saw that last week. He's saying, I'm writing this so that you may not sin. Let me put it this way. That's the target. That's the goal. That's what we're aiming at. On this side of heaven, in our sinful flesh still remaining in us, are we ever going to be perfect? No. Are we ever going to hit the bullseye every single day? No. But that is nevertheless still the target. That is still the goal. Holiness. Conformity to Christ. And I want you to think about it this way. You might say, that sounds too extreme. Surely we're still going to sin sometimes, so we should just make peace with that fact. Maybe God will give me five a day. Maybe on a bad day, eight to ten sins a day. But once I hit that point, then I got to stop. Is that the way we should think about it? Well, let me ask you, what if you're at a wedding and the couple is doing their vows and the husband says to his wife, I vow to be faithful to you 70 to 80% of the time, but no promises on the rest. I am a sinner after all. How, what, what, how loved would that wife feel in that moment? She might turn around and walk out. She might say, I don't and get out of there. 
But listen, this is the target. This is the goal that we may not sin because as uh, just as unfaithfulness is in a marriage, so sin is in the life of a Christian. That's often what the metaphor that the scripture uses. So why does John in verse one come right out and say, I'm writing this so that you don't sin? I think he does because it's very easy for us to misunderstand what he just said before this. So let's actually back up a little bit. I want to back up into last week, the passage that we studied, and read it directly into the first half of this verse. 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So twice there, both in verse 8 and in verse 10, he emphasizes the reality of our sinful nature as Christians. He emphasizes that we're not perfect and that we will continue to struggle with sin. That's why we need to walk in the light by confessing our sins. And God forgives us through his grace. But so often, this might be the most common distortion of the gospel there is, is when people hear the good news of grace, not by good works, but by faith alone, they hear that and they think, sweet. Just like a monopoly, you get your get out of jail free card. We get our spiritual get out of hell free card. And from that point on, it does not matter how we live. That is the most common distortion of the gospel. One German poet put it this way, God will forgive me, it's his job. We can have this attitude of spiritual entitlement where we can take the grace of God for granted as if he owes it to us or something. Paul anticipated the same objection in the book of Romans. After he unpacks the gospel in chapters one through five, this is what he says in chapter six. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He's saying, if you are in Christ, you have died with Christ. You have been crucified with Christ. You have died to sin. How can you now continue to live in it? The grace that forgives us is also the grace that cleanses us. That's what John is teaching us. And I remember last week, Pastor Andrew used this excellent illustration of the sheep and the pig. You guys remember? The pig falls in the mud and he's like, this is awesome. I hit the jackpot and he rolls around in it. The sheep falls in the mud and he cries out for the shepherd to pull him out. Great illustration, but let's keep going. After he pulls him out, does he leave him filthy? No, he cleanses him. Let me tell you, we come to Christ as we are. We come as the old song says, just as I am. But let me tell you that Jesus loves you way too much to leave you filthy. He loves you way too much to leave you there. The grace of the gospel is this. God forgives us, then he begins this lifelong process of cleansing us. That's what we call sanctification, pursuing holiness in our lives. So forgiveness, on the contrary, it is not license to sin, but rather it is power for holiness. Once we are forgiven, we are now enabled and empowered to walk in righteousness. So the first lie that because we're forgiven, we can sin all we want, is refuted here by John by showing us the truth of the grace of the gospel. But now he's going to address the second lie, because the next point is this. Our sinless Savior rescues us from sin's penalty. Our sinless Savior rescues us from sin's penalty. Let's keep going in verse 1. He says, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... 
we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have a sinless Savior who rescues us from sin's penalty. I said that the other lie is my sin is too big for Jesus to forgive. My sin is too big for Jesus to forgive. You know, one time Pastor Sean told me a story about visiting an elderly man in the hospital who wasn't sure if he was going to make it. And he was having a conversation with this man. He was not a believer. He's having a conversation with him about the gospel. And this man said to him, listen, Pastor, there's no way God could forgive me for all the things that I've done. And I love Pastor Sean's response. Pastor Sean said to him, is God a liar? Is God a liar? And this guy was shocked that he said that. Of course not, God's not a liar. What are you talking about? And Pastor Sean said, well, God's word says that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So tell me again, is that a lie? And that man received the gospel. You see, there is no sin that is too big for the grace of Jesus Christ. And John is about to show us why. Why is there no sin for, too big for Jesus to forgive? First of all, because he's our advocate because Christ is our advocate. I love this phrase. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That word advocate, according to one theological word book, says it combines both the legal and the relational. So think about it this way. When he calls Jesus our advocate, it means that on the one hand, think of him as like our divine defense attorney. He is the one who defends us against accusation. He is the one who represents us before the throne of God above. But it's not just an attorney that he's just doing it because he wants to get paid, right? He loves us. We are in relationship with him. He is our comforter. He is our helper. He is the one who comes alongside us to our defense. And the one who is our advocate is sinless. He is holy. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love this. If we sin, the righteous one is the one that comes to our defense. The perfect one is the one who defends the sinful ones. By way of contrast, scripture calls Satan the accuser. Jesus is our advocate. Satan is our accuser. It says in Revelation chapter 12 that Satan accuses believers before God night and day. Jesus is our advocate. Satan is our accuser. And I think we see this powerfully illustrated in Zechariah chapter three. Zechariah chapter three. Let's go through this chapter together. This is amazing to me. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua standing before, was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Let's pause there for just a moment. Zechariah is seeing this vision of the throne room of God and he sees Joshua, who's the high priest of the people, who's supposed to represent the people to God, standing there filthy. And you know what the priest was supposed to do before he entered into the temple? Washings, all kinds of ceremonial washings to symbolize a cleanliness from sin. So these filthy garments symbolize his sin before a holy God. So I want you to notice something. Satan is accusing Joshua and he doesn't have to make anything up. He doesn't even have to lie about Joshua. All he has to do to accuse him is point. God, look at him. He is filthy. Look at him, God. 
Let me suggest to you, you and I are sinners. Satan doesn't need to make anything up about me. I've given him plenty of material to work with. I am sinful. His accusations are often true. But how does God respond to them? Verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Joshua didn't clean himself up. God cleaned him up. God removed his filthy garments and clothed him with pure garments symbolizing that he had taken away his sin and he had covered him with his righteousness. And on what basis can God do that and be just? Let's continue in verse six. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. That's Jesus. This is a messianic prophecy. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Anybody know what day that was? That was a good Friday when he removed the iniquity. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig trees. Let's recap. Zechariah sees Joshua, the high priest of the people, standing before God, guilty, being accused by the evil one. God forgives him and he cleanses him because one day there is a savior who is coming who will take away the iniquity of the land. And let me tell you, that is a picture of you and me before a holy God. We are guilty. Like I said, Satan doesn't have to make anything up about me. I've given him plenty of material. We are guilty before a holy God. Yet God removes our sin and he clothes us in his righteousness because of what Jesus has done, because Jesus is our advocate. The old hymn says, well may the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. We are forgiven. We are cleansed because of Christ. So let me encourage you with this this morning. When Satan comes to accuse you, not just him, when others accuse you, worst of all, when your own heart and your own conscience accuses you, there's no need to deny it. Because here's the deal. It's worse than they think. It's worse than you think. Spurgeon used to put it this way. When men speak ill of you, smile and say it's worse than you think. <laughs> Guys, we're sinful. We're guilty. Whatever you could say about me, I promise I've said worse. But here's the deal. We are not freed from accusation by our innocence. We are freed from accusation by our advocate. Because there is one who represents us before the throne of God above because we have a sinless savior who pleads our case and he has never lost a case. And our advocate is not some kind of corrupt lawyer who tries to get you off on some sort of legal loophole. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he pleads his own blood so that God is just in forgiving us. 
That's how he is our advocate. Because this connects to our next point. Jesus can be our advocate because he is our propitiation. That is what he pleads. Christ is our advocate because he's our propitiation. Now that is a big theological word that you need to know. We're gonna spend a few minutes unpacking this important word that is at the heart of the gospel. What on earth is a propitiation? Very simply put, a propitiation is a sacrifice that turns away wrath. It is a sacrifice that turns away wrath. God is holy. He is righteous. You and I have sinned against God, and because God is holy, he must punish sin. So you and I stand deserving of the judgment and the wrath of God because of our sins. I want to even just pause there for a moment. We need, to, we need to feel the weight of that this morning. We don't often think about it in these terms. What are we saved from in the gospel? We're saved from the wrath of God. Do you ever think about it in those terms? In the gospel, God saves us from his own wrath. God saves us from his own wrath that we deserve for our sins. That's what propitiation is. That Jesus Christ, the son of God, stood in our place on the cross. That he bore our sins in our place. John Stott called that the self-substitution of God. That God loved us so much that he bore his own penalty for sin in the person of Jesus Christ. That is propitiation that Jesus takes our penalty, that he takes our sin. And I acknowledge that this is not a popular concept today. This is not a popular concept today, even in some professing Christian circles. You know, one of my favorite songs, I think a modern Christian classic, may be the best Christian song written in the last 20 or 30 years, that's a big statement, is In Christ Alone, right? Incredible song. The clearest statement of the gospel and music I think I've ever seen. And there's a line in the second verse that says, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And years ago, there was one rather left-leaning denomination that wanted to put that song in their hymnal, uh, but they didn't want that line because they were not okay with the idea of the wrath of God being satisfied in Christ. So they asked the songwriters, can we change the line? And they said, no. And I'm glad they said no. And here's why. Because if Jesus did not satisfy the wrath of God in my place, then I am still under the wrath of God. If he did not bear my sin, then one day I will bear my sin. That is at the heart of the gospel, the propitiation of Jesus. Because God is holy, sin must be punished. And the heart of the gospel is the substitutionary death of Jesus where he took my penalty instead of me. Let me be quick to say that it would be a distortion of the gospel and a distortion of this concept to imagine Jesus as paying off an angry and vindictive God, as if he had to convince God the Father to love us. That could not be farther from the truth because as John is going to show us in 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It was the father's idea. He sent his son to be our propitiation as an overflow of his love. How deep the father's love. This is the heart of the gospel, that Jesus stood in our place and took our punishment. Let's look at the rest of verse two. 
It says, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We could do a whole sermon on that phrase because this touches on a rather tricky theological question, but let me just make a few comments here very quickly. How do I understand this? I take it to mean this. He is the propitiation for our sins. That is John and this community that he's writing to. In this gospel, it is not just for us. It is not just the propitiation for our sins, but also for people all over the world. The Bible is clear. Jesus died to redeem a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And think about it. When John is writing, the gospel had only gone around the Mediterranean by this point, which is not that big of a part of the world. Now look at what the gospel has done. Look at how the gospel has spread across the globe. I mean, here we are in North America talking about Jesus 2,000 years later. The idea here is that the work of Christ paid for the sins of a particular people from all over the world. I think it helps us in understanding this to see what John said in John chapter 11. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, same grammar there, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. It's the same idea that Jesus died to save a particular people that is scattered abroad all over the world. John Piper put it this way, don't hog Jesus. He is the propitiation for our sins, yes, but also for a people that are scattered abroad all over the world. So how would John respond to the lie that my sin is too big for Jesus to forgive? He responds with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is our propitiation who paid for our sins. And on that basis, he is our advocate with the Father. He is the one who represents us. But the final point we're going to see this morning from this text is this. Our obedience demonstrates that we know God. Our obedience demonstrates that we know God. So look at verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John is showing us that our transformed life of obedience to the will of God is the evidence that we know Christ. You might remember a couple of weeks ago in the introduction sermon, I showed you the major theme of 1 John is assurance. How can we know that our faith is genuine? And you might remember that John gives three tests throughout this letter. The doctrinal test, are you believing the truth? The moral test, are you walking in obedience? The social test, are you loving others? This is the second test that he's articulating here. This is the moral test. He's showing us that a life of obedience to the will of God demonstrates that we know God. And he does this in two ways. First of all, we show that we know God by keeping his commands. By keeping his commands. Look at verse three with me. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That's the evidence. We know that we have come to know him if we are keeping his commandments. Then he states the negative in verse four to make the point even more strongly. Whoever says, I know him, whoever makes a profession of faith, whoever says, I am a Christian, 
but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I wish John would be more direct. I don't really know what he means here, right? John's a straight shooter, man. He's telling us straight up. You say you're a Christian and you're not walking in obedience, you're not a Christian. I don't write the mail, y'all. I just deliver it. That's what John says here. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And John was not alone in saying this. The Lord Jesus said the very same thing. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We know this even in our own lives. When you love someone, your desire will be to do what is pleasing to them. And if we genuinely love Christ, if we love him, if we've given our lives to him, the overflow of that love should be a desire to live a life that is pleasing to him. And God's commands in scripture are not arbitrary. They're not silly. They're for our good. God commands us of things because he made us and he knows what is best for us. So our obedience demonstrates that we know God. And I want you to notice that in 1 John here, John is saying essentially the exact same things that James says in the very controversial passage in James chapter 2 that people get spun up about, where James says that faith, if it does not manifest itself in a life of good works, is dead and useless. John's going to say the same thing just as strongly. For example, 1 John 3, 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. By keeps on, I take this to mean a lifestyle. This is a lifestyle of habitual, unrepentant, unconvicted sin. A lifestyle that is dominated by sin. John is crystal clear that that person, if a lifestyle looks exactly like the world, is indistinguishable from the rest of the world around us. That is not the, what a Christian life looks like because our lives aren't bearing good fruit. Just as a tree that does not bear fruit is useless, so a profession of faith in Christ in a person that's life has not been transformed is likewise useless. So what can we do? How can we continually grow in our obedience to God's commands as followers of Christ? I'm glad you asked. Let me give you a few thoughts here. First of all, in order to obey something, you have to know what it is. God is gracious enough not to expect us to read his mind, but he has revealed his mind to us in his word. In order to obey God's commands, we have to know what they are. That's why we've got to be in the word. As Christians, this is foundational to our growth and holiness, that we are in the word regularly, that we are studying the word, that we are reading the word, that we are sitting under the preaching of God's word, that we're studying God's word together in our small groups. When we know the word, we are able to obey God's commands. But I also want to remind you, how do we grow in obedience to God's commands? We must discipline ourselves for godliness. We must strive to obey. It takes effort. You know, and that's a word that I don't think we like to use sometimes as Christians. You know, you hear these little phrases like, you know, let go and let God and all that stuff. And that's fine. But yes, we have to trust in the Lord as we strive for obedience, but we still have to strive. Holiness takes effort. It takes striving. To use this metaphor, it might have kind of grossed out in the first service. It almost takes like spiritual sweat. Like Paul uses the metaphor of an athlete all the time. We're training ourselves for godliness. We must strive to obey. But even in our striving, we don't do it alone. 
Because the third way we grow in obedience is through living in community. We all have blind spots. I have blind spots. You have blind spots. As followers of Christ, we're going to have blind spots in our lives and we need people who love us enough to point those out. We need brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for us, to hold us accountable, to love us enough to speak truth into our lives and to encourage us. Verse five then gives us this beautiful promise. It says, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God, truly the love of God is perfected. In other words, when we keep his word, God's love for us reaches its intended goal or purpose. It has come full circle as we are loving him and loving others. So we do this by keeping his commands. Then finally, we do this by following his example. By following his example, verse six says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It's not just about obeying Jesus's commands, though that is vital. It's about following his example. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I love this because we learn way better from example than we do from lists of rules, don't we? How do you learn how to do something? You don't know how to do something? YouTube. You pull up a YouTube video, you watch it, then you try to do it. Let me give you another example. This is my time for my weekly story about my kids. I know it might be getting old, but it's, for some people, it's their favorite part of the sermon anyway. So you guys know I have a three-year-old and a two-year-old, Hannah and Leah. And the two-year-old, Leah, uh, she idolizes her big sister. She has to do everything that Hannah does. And she gets really mad when she can't. She follows her around and imitates her so carefully. Sometimes it's really cute, sometimes. Sometimes it's really not, especially when Hannah does something bad, uh, which is more common than I would probably care to admit. She is obsessed with copying everything Hannah does. And let me suggest to you that as followers of Christ, we should be as obsessed as co at copying Jesus as Leah is in copying Hannah. We should look at Jesus's life carefully and say, I have got to be just like that. Hey, Jesus spoke like that. That's how I wanna speak. Jesus treated other people like that. That's how I want to treat other people. And Jesus was constantly obedient to the will of Father. He was constant in prayer. He was constantly quoting scripture. I want to be like that. We should look at the life of our Savior and follow his example, being diligent to do so. Peter put it this way, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He is our example. And of course, he's the perfect example because verse one tells us he's Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the one who is righteous, who is holy. And he is our example. He is our model. Some of you who are Christians in the 90s, you know, maybe you gotta go find your WWJD bracelet and break it out sometimes. That can be a good reminder for you. I said that in the last service and, and Keith came up to me afterwards. He's like, does that include like the flipping tables and stuff? I said, maybe sometimes, I don't know. But the bottom line is, he is our example of what it looks like to walk in holiness. He is our pattern that we are following. Just like a stencil when you're doing a drawing, he is the pattern that we are trying to trace with our lives. This is what it looks like for us to follow Christ. 
So with all of these things in mind, I'd like to now invite the worship team to come back and we're gonna close with singing. I'd like to invite the prayer team to come forward. And if you came in this morning with a burden or with a prayer need, we have people that love you who would love to go before the throne of God with you this morning in prayer. But I wanted to leave you with one final thought. You know, I began this sermon by talking about two lies that I think we're often tempted to believe. The first lie being, because I'm forgiven, I can sin all I want. And we saw John's responses to that. He said, no, our obedience demonstrates that we know God. And grace is not just power for forgiveness, it's power for change. It's power for holiness. We saw lie number two, the lie that my sin is too big for Jesus to forgive. And we saw that that's a lie because Jesus has paid for our sins and because Jesus is our advocate with the Father. <laughs> but I wanna close with this thought. John talks a lot about sin. You go through these verses, he talks a lot about sin. His church probably wasn't real big. But here's the deal. Why does God want us as Christians not to sin? Ultimately, yes, to glorify him. But I think it's because God is a father who loves us and he knows what is best for us. We don't make rules for our children because we're arbitrary and we're bored and we just wanna make up rules to kill their fun. We have rules in place for our children because we love them and we want to protect them. We want them to grow and mature in a healthy way and we want to see what's best for them. Our Father in heaven, how much more does he love us? Because here's the deal. I said earlier, we come to Christ just as we are. But I want you to know that he loves you way too much to leave you there. And I also want you to know that there is no greater joy in this world than pursuing Christ. The joy of knowing him and walking in fellowship with him is so much sweeter than anything this world has to offer. So it takes faith sometimes. It takes faith to believe in these promises of God when the moment of temptation comes. But it's my hope in my heart that by the power of the spirit, by looking to our advocate and our example, Jesus Christ, we would have the faith to demonstrate our, our faith through obedience to him. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the gospel. It's our only hope. Our only hope is that Christ has paid for our sin, that he is our advocate even now interceding for us. Lord, I pray that in all of our lives, you would sanctify us, you would shape us, you would mold us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, and we praise you for it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.